This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You don't just live in your home, you live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, transportation, local amenities, cultural attractions, unique qualities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions change their careers, what relationships influence their work. On Sunday nights in the late 90s and early 2000s, you would hear this in homes all over the country. In six seasons and two feature films, Carrie, Miranda, Charlotte, and Samantha navigated the complexities of single life in New York City. When HBO's Sex and the City wrapped in 2004, it left millions of empty cosmopolitan glasses in its wake and changed brunch conversations forever. All four of its actresses became major stars, most notably the show's narrator and my guest today, Sarah Jessica Parker. I am someone who is looking for love. Real love. Parker's professional career began long before she became Carrie Bradshaw. At 11, she made her Broadway debut in The Innocents. She went on to star in films opposite Bruce Willis, Nicolas Cage, and Steve Martin. But Sex in the City brought Parker a different kind of success. Parker the actress became Parker the celebrity, fashion icon, television producer. Today, Sarah Jessica Parker is also a mother. She has three kids under 13. The decision to become a mother was not one Parker took lightly. When you're one of eight children and there isn't a lot and you are struggling, you don't think that this, well, I'd like to replicate this. Yeah, you don't want to give your siblings your real address. <laughs> no, you think, gosh, I can't wait to have my own space. I can't wait to own a dress that was mine to begin with that wasn't seven or eight other people's first. You have that now, though, don't you? A dress that's your own? I do, and you I do. understand that actually that isn't as fulfilling as one might it, it, have imagined everything. as an eight-year-old. But I really wanted a lack of chaos. I wanted... I enjoyed it 
my siblings, and I'm in I'm mad and really quite taken with them now, and have been for many years. But I didn't think at the time that I wanted to recreate that when at last I was on my own. You know, it was insane in our home. And your, but and your childhood, you started working very young. Mm-hmm. You were you were a child I was actor. Eight. You were eight. Mm-hmm. And what do you remember about your childhood? Um, I'm not certain how we sort of recreate how we felt about our childhood because I wouldn't want it any other way. I wouldn't want I wouldn't want to sort of fix the things that were painful or change the disappointments to triumphs or the struggles to ease. I remember everything about my childhood it, and I think the memories are vivid because it was a very vivid life. It was a colorful, energetic, unpredictable, exciting, scary, sad, ebullient life. And um, I think I benefited from that in countless ways, far more than I would have if it had been easy and carefree and without concern and worry. I think I loved working because it allowed me something of my own, time to myself, something that I felt was mine. Were your siblings performers, any of them? My brother Toby was an actor um, and was started working before me. And then we eventually worked together a number of times. And I think he would also say that he loved this independence from his siblings, money, knowing that we had this, we were creating like a pass. You remember your passbook at the bank? You you and I have that in okay. common. Okay. So all of those were wonderful. Going home was a little dreary after a day of independence. But I think about days that I didn't want to be in my home and I think about days that I got to be out working as an actor, that, you know, getting through the days that, that I found not always super pleasant, <laughs> um, I earned those days away. I earned the $5 they gave me for my dinner money or this opportunity to pretend to be somebody else. So I liked the balance of the suffering and the reward. Is that crazy? I no, no. I, I think that I, I remember when, when I worked and I got a job. And I remember I just felt strange. I mean, they, they, I, I did a television soap opera in New York that was the lowest rated soap opera. <laughs> Which one was I it? I did The Doctors on oh, NBC yeah, before yeah. they were canceled. Were you a doctor? No, I was the bastard son. I was the swindling son <laughs> of a doctor. The scion? And I get this job. Uh, they pay How you. How old were you? Do you remember? I was 20, uh, 22, 1980. Uh, yeah. And I get the job and they pay me the minimum. Yeah. And I get a check for whatever, like $65,000 the first year. I remember sitting there thinking, oh I God. make more money than my dad, yeah. Yeah. who's yeah. been teaching for 28 years yeah. in a public school. Yeah. And I felt funny. Yeah. I felt weird. Yeah. Like people will always sometimes smack you or swat you and say, what do you know? You're out of touch because you, all you people are so overpaid. And there's a part of me that sits there and goes, yeah. I mean, the, it is cr- kind of crazy. But, but, uh, but no, I have to ask you a question. Wait, let me just go back because I think it is curious when you're criticized or or there's a conversation around sort of that you might be out of touch or you're not, you know, you don't recognize what it means to work hard. On one hand, you can say it is true. Um, lots of people make absurd amounts of money and it, none of it's just, none of it makes sense and none of it's fair. And it's, but I think the accusation of you're being out of touch or you're not aware of what it means to work hard, that's the part of that kind of charge that I am most frustrated by because a lot of people I know who work in entertainment theater, show business, 
didn't come from anything and simply worked incredibly hard and were willing to to work hard and earn nothing. And every now and then a job comes along that does pay. And that, you know, that's wonderful. And almost everybody I know is thrilled and appreciative. So the idea that, you know, we're sort of blithely going through life, you know, not aware of yeah. um, how, how out of are. whack it is and yeah. how lucky we are to, to, and, to and the other, And the other part of that I find is that other people have jobs where there's a meritorious system of ascendancy. Mm-hmm. You go to high school, you do well, you get the good SATs, you get the GPA, you get the right scores, you go to Harvard. Mm. And in our business, you can be great and do great work. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're going to move up. Sometimes the most successful people are, are not the most talented people in terms of the kind of complexity of their acting, if you will. Yeah, and Some I think them. the unpredictable nature, I mean, and it, it's, it's impossible, you know, to compare career trajectories and paths and choices. But there are things that are, you know, obviously very unstable about making these life choices. And, and most people, you know, really... Everybody I admire basically has not really, you know, hit the pay dirt the way that I think they should have, and so you know, I'm, I'm particularly sensitive to the idea that I that I'm not aware of what it means to work hard, and and that I'm not aware of the imbalance of you know the, the sort of it's not you know. But it's I want to talk to you. For me, what is interesting is you. I mean, eventually you become very famous. It's you, it's Mary Tyler Moore, it's Gene Stapleton, and you become one of the most prominent women in the history of television. Before Sex and the City, when someone hired you, what were they hiring you for? Well, they were usually hiring me to play, uh, for a while I was the cerebral best friend of the pretty lead girl, subversive or... uh, could be a clever person, witty, um, maybe bitter, uh, you know, uh, funny, buoyant. Um, uh, wisecracking. Wisecracking, but not overly confident. Um, so that I found enormous pleasure in and felt, why would I complain? You know, this is the career, this is the journeyman career I always dreamed of having. This was the career I wanted. And so that was the kind of, those were the roles. Never the lead, you know, Footloose. I was the spirited best friend of Lori Singer. She was the beautiful, withholding, I don't know, <laughs> desirable uh, lead. And But once again, I will say, and I couldn't mean this, and it's not that I'm looking back on it, fondly and kind of creating affection for a time or a place, I really, I thought I had it all. I would work in the theater all the time. I would play these smaller parts in movies. I would do television shows. Um, I thought I had everything a person could ever want and hope for, and I would never have been so bold as to as to say I did want more than that. I assumed that the leads were really only made for a particular type of girl and then woman. And I understood that I just wasn't going to ever be that person. And I talked myself into believing that the roles that I got to play were more (laughs) complex people. They were more nuanced. They were more interesting. Sometimes that was the case, not always. But the opportunity to work, to move from job to job was the best because I was constantly 
figuring out new relationships, new people. How did they work? How do I work? What do I want to do like they do? What do you I make never... a lot? Of, you make a lot of films. You, yeah. I, I remember that. But you, all the people you get to meet. I mean, those days of like running to a payphone, checking your voicemail. I mean, sorry, checking payphone. your answering machine. It was like you're like, oh, there's a lot of calls. It's a lot of calls. You and have 39 messages. Messages. Just the potential of that next job. Also, the romantic relationships that exist when you're moving that quickly and you're young and you're, I don't know, all of it, I think, was, uh, I, I couldn't have planned it any better in a way. And then what happened? And then um, uh, Kevin Uvane, my agent of 28 or 30 years now, rang me and said, there is this pilot script, a guy named Darren Starr. Do you know who Darren Starr is? I said, yes, I you know certainly do, Melrose Place. Um, Beverly Hills 90210. He, he said he's written this pilot. He says he's written it with you in mind. So Starr told Uvane he wrote this with you in mind. Correct. Got it. Uh, Kevin Uvane told me that that's what Darren Starr had, had shared with him. Would I read this script? Um, I read the script right away. I was really kind of confounded by the idea that I was a voice that would have come to mind. Because she was so, this part of Carrie Bradshaw was so unlike anything I'd ever played. And the book had come out before. When? How long? How soon before? um, I would say maybe a year and a half, two years prior to the script. He had been clever enough to go to Candace and say, can I buy the rights to this and use this as a jumping off point? I had been sent the book anonymously. I mean, just, you know, as publishers sometimes send people books. I was familiar with this column. I thought it was a really clever, interesting take on sexual politics. I loved the way she wrote. And so I met with Darren. And, you know, I was busy. I was doing a Broadway musical at the time. I was shooting movies during the day and going to the theater at night and, you know, had two or three movies coming out. And he said to me, you know, I would love for you to consider this. We met at Eat on the Upper East Side, which I thought was kind of a fancy place. It's expensive. You know, the menu's pretty dear, like everything on the menu. And uh, I said, you know, I don't feel comfortable doing nudity. I don't. I think we can be more thoughtful about this language. She's a writer. Does she have to use the F word? Isn't she more thoughtful about, you know, he kept just saying to everything, every possible obstacle I can throw in his way to talk him out of hiring me. He had a relatively great convincing answer. Had you been successful at talking people out of hiring you previously? Um, had you had some luck with that? I think I'd given people lots of other ideas. Like, don't you think Patty Clarkson? I'm exactly the same way. I'm always offering exactly up Patty Clarkson because I I don't know about you, but I always have these actors in my head that I think are more deserving or better, Frank, simply better. Uh, I always think you don't want me. I always think that. Always. And I always think that there were like four or five other three named actresses that either they maybe meant to go to first and that when I showed up, they were like, God, we didn't mean that. We meant Mary Louise Parker. But anyway... He was very convincing and um, and really uh, just so tenacious. He just never let the idea go. And and I said, oh, and by the way, between you and me, and I'm actually getting married, I think next week it was. I think I'm getting married next week on my night off. He got the day off. We're going to get married. Uh, so I don't want to sh- start shooting until after we get married. And he said, that's fine. We'll figure it out. We'll push it a few days. And so I went and did this pilot and... Um, you know, Were you ready to do a TV show? No, and to be honest, at the time, HBO is a very different network. It was a place that was a primarily male-dominated um, 
uh, uh, network. It was there was heavy on the sports and boxing. There were a few scripted shows, Dream On, um, a football Remember Dream show. On? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Um, there was a football show about a, a football team. You know, it was skewed toward the male audience that existed for the for their sports, their great special sports events. And so I thought, you know, I'll do this pilot. And I loved, I thought the script was spectacular. And actually, I gave it to Matthew and my oldest brother, Pippin. And they both read it and said, without a doubt, you should do this. Really? You've never been offered anything like this. The writing is is really, really good. It's smart. It's different. There's nothing else they could think of that was like it. So I did the pilot, went on with my life. And one day I was walking down the street and I ran into Meryl Poster. And she said to me, I think I was on my way to, to see a play. And she said, oh, I, I, I saw um, your television show. And I said to her, what, what television show? And she said, did you do a pilot called Sex and City? And I was like, and I literally said, oh, that's right, I did. And she said, it's good. And I said, it is. I haven't seen it. And she said, oh, no, I just saw it. I think it's really good. I said, oh, okay. So after Meryl Poster saw the, told you she saw the pilot, what happens next? I think eventually I saw it or was forced to see it. And um, there was this discussion of it, you know, going to series. And I then tried to get out of it. I went to Kevin Uvane and I went to, uh, oh, who's the great television agent at CIA who ran the television? Haber. Lee. Lee. Oh, God, forgive me. Um, anyway, I went to them, called a meeting and said to them, gentlemen, you have to help me get out of this. I don't want to do a television series. I I've rethought this. Um, I would like to offer myself up to HBO basically free. I will work for them for the next four years. I'll do any television movie they want, but I just don't think I want to be caught up and tied down in a television series. This is after you'd seen the pilot. After I'd seen the pilot. I might not have seen the pilot yet, and I just sort of panicked. rethought my future and panicked. And eventually, they, a producer ended up coming on the show who I did a movie with, Miami Rhapsody. They said to me, look, this is, we'll tell you about this kind of home. HBO is a place where if it doesn't feel good after season one, we don't do season two. Don't worry about that. Just let's try this. We're not going to hold you hostage. I went to the set on the first day, and I never looked back. And every day I got in the shower to go to work, I was, I was gobsmacked by the idea that I didn't want to be anywhere else. There wasn't a day that I spent on that set that I didn't want to be there. When I think of that show, because it was a lot of practical locations. I mean, you guys were on the streets a lot, correct? Yeah, you weren't on the yeah. stage much. No, we weren't. And I always think of you like four chicks in a trailer, changing your clothes, and outside you hear, and the <laughs> yeah, generator yeah, lighting yeah, yeah. on the streets of New York. Yeah, yeah. But it you was, loved it. I loved it. I loved the work. I loved the people. I love the storytelling. I love the character. I love the... When did you know you guys had gotten it, though? Well, I felt at the end of the first Cooking. season, um, we produced the whole first season without being on the air. We went on the air, I think, while we were already into our second season shooting. And even though there wasn't a terribly large audience at that time, I just felt that the stories we were telling were successful. I, I think it became really necessary for us as we started to face second and possibly third season that it had to get you couldn't hang your hat on being titillating you couldn't hang your hat on you know nor did we want to on the story of um, clothes and Carrie and the story that told but rather she had to start revealing why she was floundering why why was she a mess and Michael just had some innate sort of preternatural instinct about Carrie Bradshaw and how to tell her story and he was why do you think that superior. is superior I think Michael was, you know, grew up with a lot of bunch of sisters, 
lot of important women in his life. He is deeply curious about women's stories. He can write women. It doesn't really make any sense, although there have been some great, great screenwriters who've written, I mean, we know them, but he just was very, very, first of all, he loved Carrie Bradshaw. He loved telling her story and was as invested in it as I was. And I think that's why we were such great partners and producing partners, because we were both bitter enders. We will work till we were bloody and bloody crossing the finish line. We cared about it being as perfect as possible, but he loved that girl and he loved those stories. And I think when you're that interested and curious about when you're a writer like that, it just makes the writing that much richer. So King's the head writer, and he's a guy with an eye and an ear toward women's stories. Was the writing staff a lot of women, or was it mostly men? All women. It was, um, it was all women. The top of each season, they would um, meet in a writing room in Los Angeles where a lot of them lived, and Michael Patrick's you know, home base was when he wasn't in, you know, shooting our show. And every now and then a fellow would come along and he would sit in the writing room, I think at the top, you know, when they were breaking story and just um, kind of give a perspective that was important for people to be familiar with because there was such a strong female sensibility. And a couple of scripts were written by men. We had one young man for a while, but they weren't as consistent year to year as as our women were. At what point when you... It was a teeny staff, too, very tiny relative for television, considered quite small. Guerrilla style. Yeah. You know, at some point the show becomes this huge hit, and at what point in the process did they start to turn to you and say, well, now you're a producer, well, and I, now we're going to factor in your input? Well, when I first met with Darren, he said to me, why don't you be a consulting producer on the show or a consultant? And I said, you know, he said, it'd be good for you. You could learn about television. You could learn about producing television. So I said, well, who would say no to an opportunity to learn? And so I was very devoted to that idea. And second season, they said, do you want to start producing? And I did. And I I said, yes, if they continued to let me learn. And that the, sort of the understanding was that I kind of laid out was that I would only contribute if and when I thought I had something valuable to say. Really, it was an opportunity for me to now sit, be more part of the conversation and learn about producing. And I just did and loved it. I mean, loved it. And one one aspect of that that comes to mind for me is that in your career prior to this, number one on the call sheet is a guy and you're the girl. So Nick Cage (laughs) approves you. Yeah. And Bruce approves you. No, I was hired before Nick. Well, then, then I read then, all the men. But what I mean, but for, for many yes. times in your career, yeah. whether you're working with Tim and you're working mm-hmm. with all these people you made movies or you made a lot of movies, you're the girl. Yeah. And now you're number one on the call sheet. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you get to decide who the men are that are coming in the door. How yeah. did that work with you? You know, I mean, you have like kind of um, tastes, you, and and you react in ways that you didn't even know you would. I would have you know, feelings about certain names. And and Michael would have feelings. And that was, you know, sometimes hard because he would write it. So he imagined things. And so I couldn't argue with what what he saw in his head. My problem was that I, I knew what I was going to have to do on screen with them. And I think there's something very interesting about that, which is hard to explain to people, but you and I can get into it now. So... <laughs> You know when they've given you somebody to play opposite and everybody wanted them but you. 
Because what and you'd allow that. And what you know, I would allow it under duress. When someone's holding me down and saying, you have to trust me, you have to trust me, I know you haven't seen this out of this person, I think he or she can do Donald it. Donald Trump is perfect for this part of your boyfriend. <sighs> so what I think is hard to explain to these people, right, the Senate that believes in their choice, is that you know what they won't bring. And you know what you will then have to do is tell the story for two people on camera. And I think what's really, really dangerous about that is you end up projecting onto the other person what you wish they were bringing into the scene. And what I think happens is you become a bad actor. You overact. That's a fascinating observation. You try to create chemistry and romance and love and you imbue the scene with everything and you can't because when you feel it even if you're not in love with this person i've worked with countless actors who i i'm not in love with them i really mean it but i love working with them and i can i don't care what they look like smell like where they come from who they are how tall how short if they're smart and interesting and talented they're good actors i do not care. talent is the greatest aphrodisiac it's but then this is the weird part, right? This is the, the, the fork in the road is that I don't need to – I don't even care if I don't want to have sex with them. Or I'm, I'm using that as a if euphemism for yeah, to play with them, right, have, have if, some romance. You just want to feel some friction, some kind of exciting – Or some, or some love. Swordplay or love. Yeah, or, or love. Some capturing of something. I did Streetcar Named Desire with Amy Madigan, and Amy Madigan's a real Annie Oakley, yeah. flinty cowgirl. You know, yeah. she's with this really kind of tough little girl. And I loved Amy every night I was in love with her. Yeah. And I've got to have that. Yeah. Some feeling for it's them. It's just so wonderful to have that. And when you don't, it's, it's a kind of hard work. That what would you do? <laughs> I would be, you know, it would be very hard. And you earn your money that week. I guess so. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I think it it would be hard, and it would be a different kind of hard work. Like I would work so hard on that show. I worked hours. I would do a hundred and hundred and ten hour weeks. I didn't care. This kind of hard work shows. It made me a bad actor because I would try to keep it alive and sort of you can't play tennis for yourself for both parties and I think it makes you over animated surfacey and fake fake, and it's just awful and it would upset me and it would make me pouty it's really bizarrely hard my code word when I was doing the series was I'd say to them I go you decide (laughs) If I didn't like oh. the person, that's what I'd say. They'd say to me, we were thinking of so-and-so. I'd take a long pause and i go, well, you decide. So you decide meant no. You decide You decide meant, meant I don't like yeah. that idea. Yeah. Now, so you, you're number one on the call sheet now. You're producing the show. What do you decide, if anything, in terms of the text? I mean, because the show did get glorified and it also got some criticism for mm. what you're saying about single women and mm. sex. And mm. Did you think about that? I mean, I thought about what I knew and heard about. I didn't read anything, didn't really, we didn't talk about peripheral chatter. We just, Michael and I had a kind of uh, agreement, like a blackout. We just really, the only things we ever spoke about press-wise was when we were first in Maureen Dowd's column and we thought, wow, this show is familiar enough for her to talk to refer for her to reference, As a reference it, that this is 
Yeah, this is hit, hit a, a place culturally. Milestone. But what about the content of the scripts? Did you say to them, I, I don't want to say that I about women. Say, I don't want to say that about sex. I no, don't wanna... you know what I was most concerned about and what I was super vigilant about and a super gatekeeper was the choice of language. After the table read, I would say, and I don't mean just, you know, salty language. I was a real watchdog about that. Because I thought, you know, she's... On an a, HBO, you could have gone blue. You could have, and, you know, it's really kind of easy, but you have to be kind of it's smarter lazy. than it's lazy. So, and also, Carrie was a writer. I wanted her to be thoughtful about the choice of words, but also, I wanted her to be smart. And even though she was a mess, and even though she made mistakes, and even though she showed poor judgment, that didn't mean she couldn't use interesting language when she was trying to talk about feelings and her own feelings and sexual politics and the um, the mess that is her relationships romantically or how she fell short in her friendships. I wanted her choice of words to be as complicated as she was. And sometimes she got beep, 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 surfacey, cutey, beep, and that used to really freaking upset me. And I would get very strident about it. I was a gatekeeper. I felt like I had this family heirloom in my hands that someone said to me, this is your responsibility. And Sarah Jessica still feels responsible for the character she helped create. In 2013, when a Sex in the City spinoff, The Carrie Diaries, premiered, featuring a 16-year-old Carrie, Parker admitted finding that odd. The show was canceled after two seasons. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%.
Identity theft protection starts here. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest today is Sarah Jessica Parker, who became a household name when she starred on HBO's Sex in the City. Her character, advice columnist Carrie Bradshaw, dated many different men over the run of the show, but it was her on-again, off-again relationship with Mr. Big that fans could not get enough of. Have you got a smoke? I quit. Oh, we always used to share a cigarette together. We did a lot of things that were bad for me together. Chris Noth played Mr. Big, and he was a central figure in the show from the very first episode. I knew Chris, and uh, so we did this table read, and I knew after the table read, I thought, wow, this could be good. This Carrie Big thing could be really good. And my greatest concern was that I was going to appear like a Twinkie, that he was so earthbound and so, so masculine, so virile and um, kind of truculent. A force of nature. That I was going to, my voice would somehow go up, you know, two octaves higher. And um, But I loved the story. <laughs> I said, oh, this is good. The last, you know, these last three, four lines of the script were perfect. And um, but, he, but he is a, so, so special. And we'll get back to the girls in a second or the women, I should say. <laughs> But cause since we got onto Chris, you know, the, the thing that surprised me most about Chris was um, how I would never have predicted that we would have become that close, that he and I would have become so reliant upon one another that it would be my job to take care of him on more than, you know, four or five, six dozen occasions that I was really responsible for keeping him happy, that I could negotiate his worst moments and and bring him out of them. That that was that he was my charge in love some him. way. I I love and the way you love a great fellow actor and always yeah. and wouldn't have wanted to see anybody else do it, play it. Um, and all these people we meet, and you can have love with them. Tony Hopkins, I did a movie with him. I mean, I can't tell you. Like every day, I was around him. I was like, oh my God, I want to enjoy every minute of this. Yeah. I mean, he's. I won't be doing this forever. You know. And it's funny because you just can't maintain those relationships. It's such a lesson to learn when you're first starting out and you're on a movie set and it's all done and everybody goes home and you think, these are the people I'm going to know for the rest of my life and, you know, write long letters and longhand and and page after page of, you know, the documentation of your day and We're going to get a house together on a lake. Friendships and, yeah, the, a lake house would be nice and... Um, but the truth is, someone said, if you leave and you stay in touch with one person from a job, that's like a miracle. You know, people just go on. And um, so these relationships are are funny and very unusual and, and therefore, I think, more special because they are this kind of um, 
finite little... And how we have to pick up where we left off. Yeah. I'd be at an award show and I'd see someone go, oh my God, Cynthia. You know, <laughs> hug Cynthia, kiss Cynthia. Yeah. My daughter would say, when was the last time you saw her? I go, I don't know, three years ago. <laughs> it's very you know, odd. you got to just pick up right where you left it's off. It's the gypsy kind of transient thing. I call them the girls because I once joked with Kristen that the four of you were like the Beatles, actually. Any quartet I compare to the Beatles. You all had distinct yeah. personalities and distinct yes. idiosyncrasies. And even the imperfections were kind of perfect, too, because we were all really different, and and we had to figure it out and create friendships on screen, you know, kind of prematurely before it meant anything in our real lives. You know how you kind of go backwards? You know, there's a whole history that brought these women together, and we eventually caught up with our characters, basically. Um, we were together for 10, 11 years telling these stories. And, you know, by the end, the kind of feelings that we had for one another were like what we were doing on screen. It was very weird. And it took a long time to figure out who we are with one another. But I remember sitting in Morocco for the last movie we all had trailers, but we preferred to share um, a hotel room. And I thought, wow, this is um, this is the best it could be. Kim might be lying down for a minute, or Cynthia's lying down, and I'm reading a book, or eating some some eating something more likely than not. And we're all just in a room, completely comfortable. The very thing you hope for in romance, you're like, I just want to get to that time with this fellow where I can eat in front of him. Or where I can just read a book and I don't, I'm not worried about entertaining him. Or, and that's where we were as women and friends and fellow actors. And a lot had been written that was untrue and it had been painful for all of us. And we'd been all through it. We had traveled to this other side together and without trying that hard, because you can't really try that hard in real relations. Like you can't focus it that way. You can't be that result-oriented because they're people, they're human. You know, what are you going to do? You can't force it. But I really thought at that moment, wow, like if this is it, this is the best. This is the and best. Honest. And honest. And When you get that honest wave, I mean, it's, it's, I always tell people it's like that moment in West Side Story when he says to her at the dance, he says, you're not lying, are you? And she says, I have not yet learned to lie about such things. Oh, yeah. And it has to be those people. Yeah. You know, I have a very strange metaphysical feeling about that. It's like McCartney said to me about the Beatles. He said everyone was pressuring them to hire the guy that was the best drummer in London. Right. And the guy came and played a few tracks for them, and they didn't really like him very mm, much. Mm. And Ringo Starr was off fulfilling other commitments he had to other bands that he was uh, associated with. And he came back to record with them, and they all said, it's got to be him or we're not doing it anymore. It has to be us four. Now, for you, well, the fifth Beatle for you guys was the designer, who was? Um, well, there was a toss-up. Was it, was it the city of New York? Or was it Pat Field? Pat Field. Well, <laughs> yeah. the clothes were such a huge yeah. thing. Uh, the, yeah, the clothes were... Was that presented to you up front that she was going to become this style master? Well, actually, we brought her in after the pilot because she had designed um, she had designed Miami Rhapsody, a movie I shot with David Frankel that he wrote and directed in Miami. We knew we were going to um, rehire the costume designer, and he said Pat Field, and I was like... Uh, uh, of course, it's Pat Field. Of course. And I had loved working with her. Like, 
fallen in love with her. she had that, remember when I went to NYU, she had that very very idiosyncratic boutique on 8th on, Street. On 8th Street, which was still open, and I did had many meetings with her there. And only later, well into the life of the series, or even the movie, did, did she have to leave that. It was the landlord forced her out after all those years, I think 30-some years there. Was she with you all the seasons of the show? All the seasons and the movies. And at what point does it come to you? Do you become where you're really kind of getting further and further untethered from the mothership here of fashion because obviously you wore a lot of very stylized clothing. Well, she she would have always told the story the same way no matter what. I think the only difference being that in the very beginning we couldn't get our hands on anything. Nobody wanted to give us a thing. Nobody. And we had a teeny, 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 I mean, talk about anemic. We had a tiny, tiny budget for the whole per episode. And so that's why I wore so many thrift clothes from thrift stops. And (laughs) that was the only way to fulfill, you know, something unique. So so she was very clever. So thrift stores by necessity. Thrift stores by necessity. We went to some rental houses in Miami, in New York. She had an apartment in Miami. She had resources in Miami and frankly, all over. And we just pulled and pulled and pulled. And it was about, I think, toward the end of the second or even the beginning of third season, I can't remember which, someone will correct me, that it was Fendi that loaned us a baguette. And that was like the gateway. That was, you know, the floodwaters. It, everything shifted. We were able to get our hands on pieces that could help us tell the story maybe a little bit more clearly. That and, so, and so the woman who starred in the show that had a that wore thrift store clothes because you had a thrift store budget for the show, mm-hmm. as soon as Sex in the City really starts to concretize in the culture and Maureen Dowdnell's, do you have people coming to you going, we're going to do this and this and this and this? And how are we going to monetize? Mm-hmm. Or did all of it come to you slowly? I think the world was really different then. So all of that didn't really exist in the same way. I wanted to do a fragrance and... That Whose was, idea was that? That was mine. I long dreamed of doing a fragrance for lots of reasons I won't bore your listeners with. So I actually eventually had the courage to to say this to somebody. But this was in the days before actors were doing it. There was one. There was the great Elizabeth Taylor signature fragrance, White Diamonds, and really wasn't. And, and Jennifer Lopez had very been really smart about business and fragrance business in particular. But all of that stuff... Anything that came to me because of the show, I was like super vigilant about not doing what was easy just because it was lucrative. I mean, that's always a great challenge. Not of being course. greedy. Yeah, not being You're greedy. And what it. is the real connection to it? And you know, I would have had them name a donut after me at Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> if they would have written me a seven figure. I'm not like you. You have a lot of integrity. And sex and the Carrie Bradshaw is this iconic figure. Me, I would have let them name like a tie with whales on it after me at Brooks Brothers. <laughs> well, that would have been actually really cute. Okay. I well, mean, that's okay. Actually, that's a word for it. That's cute. a connection that isn't so ridiculous, actually. Yeah, I was ready to cash in. I was ready. Let's let's have a Jack Donaghy. I was uh, afraid. Okay, but. But you have to remember, Bail 30 Bondsman. Rock came after, by the time 30 Rock was on the air and the time you're talking about people presenting you with crazy opportunities, the world had shifted. When Garnier came to me, Tina's now the spokesperson for, and said to me, we want you to do hair care commercials, I was like, uh, and and actually this actor who I adored and admired and thought like hung the moon and I will not say his name sad just said to me 
well, you know, you're being really smart. At least you're not doing hair care commercials. And then they came to me with this crazy offer. And I said, no, immediately. Nope. Because this actor I admired said to me, well, at yes. least you're not doing Colin hair care. Firth told me, how and don't then, you dare. Well, version, an American version of Colin Firth. Let's put it that way. And then I said to uh, Kenny Lonergan, who's my husband's best friend, I said, you know, they offered this. And ex-actor said, no. He said, are you out of your... Are you idiot? Are you... And I was like, is it too late to... Call? Like, I not wasn't practicing it. Do you actually pick up the phone and say, I've been thinking... So I called... Richard Lovett and I said, like, I've made this. I think yeah. this grave error. And he said, Oh, you, this so is it great. Interesting, isn't it interesting how you go from talking people out of hiring you to talking them back into hiring? You come full circle. Sarah Jessica Parker, full circle is you calling up the fructis people, saying, "I fructised up here." Yeah, exactly. Anyway, they were nice and um, forgiving, and um, the rest is history. Yeah. But, but I want to talk to you about: um, Is it kind of not ruined, but does it affect you? Does it? Because I think it does. It can. Does it affect you in terms of? Um, acting and actresses to be married to who you're married to, who's so talented and so polished oh, and so smart nice. and so elegant. And you sit there sometimes and go, I always have an image of you like lying in bed with your husband. I have these very romantic Woody Allen movie images. You're in bed and you have a freshly squeezed grapefruit juice in the Times. <laughs> Who squeezed it? And uh, your son, of course. His parents was, are stars. Was the paper ironed? Get me so the newspaper prior was to ironed being brought to yeah, us by in a bed. butler, of course, by a butler it's, named James Wilkie. Yes, James, exactly. that juice isn't going to walk over here by itself, son. <laughs> and you're in bed, and the sun brings you the chop, tray. Chop. chop, chop. Keep start trotting, as they say. <laughs> And he brings you the juice, and you're sitting there, and your husband and you are just giving each other notes about scripts, and don't you don't want to work with him? Now, come Who on. do they want you to work with? No, 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 no. Do you really? Can, I mean, I'm so flattered. Do you? You? I actually picture that in other people's lives, and perhaps even yours, but included in yours would be a physical. My wife is a, a yoga instructor of yeah, some sort. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I mean, we don't have that kind of leisure time, and no, none of that has ever happened. Although I will say. There was a time before we had children. Do you remember that? Where we would sleep. I mean, do you remember not being in bed with us? But do you remember that time before you had children where you were... I'm trying to envision being in bed with you. Go, go, go. (laughs) Where you woke up at like 11, you were like... Oh yeah, God, crack of 12, crack of 11. You're like, yeah. oh, it's 11.08. Yeah. And um, then you would get the paper, and you would sit yeah. with someone you liked or loved, hopefully, and you would read, um, and you'd talk about coffee yeah. and put another log on the fire. Go to Cinema Village and watch a movie. Yeah, or go to, you know, Film Forum or go to Chinatown on Sundays. Um, you know, all of that. I'm so glad we did that, though. You know, as much as I think, wow, that was, I, I'm, I'm, sometimes I miss it a lot. At least you did it. You did it. One thing I always never ceased to amaze me was that in my single days, when I was married, got divorced, I was single for several years, and whenever I would date women, regardless of whether they had law degrees, they worked in biotech, whatever they were doing, we would talk about their television viewing, and they would say, well, I don't watch television. I really don't have time for television. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of disconnecting my cable. Well, I watch Sex in the City. <laughs> That's storytelling. That's the writing. That's the stories we got to tell. We were just the... Repository. We were the lucky enough. People you never want to do a series enough. again? Um, I used to say never. Now I think, would they let me do six or eight episodes? Right. Then I could do it. It's just hard with the kids right now in school and needing to be there you for them. You have little kids and now. I have two five-year-olds and a 12-year-old. And um, if I could do it the way I like to do things, which is splitting the atoms, the bitter ender, and still be a good parent and wife, yeah, I think I would. 
you know, it's just about timing and choices now that I have kids. That's the thing. But it's, you know. Like Strasbourg says in The Godfather, this is the life that we've chosen. Yeah. It's a, a dream, really. Sarah Jessica Parker is living her dream again. She said she was on the beach with her family just the day before. The tide was way out, you know, so that if you're a small child, there's just no sense of danger and the ocean is no longer this formidable, awful thing but your friend. And and we were on the beach building what we call drippy castles. The feeling was close to those Sunday mornings lazing in bed over coffee, but the circumstances were very different. Sarah Jessica seemed to think it was a consequence of getting older. Maybe it's finally time for another spin-off, one about an older, wiser Carrie Bradshaw who navigates the complexities of motherhood and marriage. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.